Hello, it's Thursday, January the 6th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show, coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... David Bowie is the latest artist whose back collection of music is being sold for a huge sum of money. But what does it all mean? Why there is a shortage of Covid tests? And on testing, pre-travel testing to be scrapped, giving a huge boost to the travel industry. It means we could enjoy some winter sun. But first, in yet another extraordinary twist, is Prince Andrew likely to settle that case with his American accuser if he loses the attempt this week in court to have the case struck out? Stay tuned to find out. So, in a new twist, it emerges Prince Andrew potentially could settle out of court with his US sex case accuser if the judge rules that the case should go to trial. Insiders say the option is on the table if Judge Lewis Kaplan rejects Prince Andrew's legal team's motion this week to have Virginia Dufresne's lawsuit struck out. Prince Andrew's team are understood to acknowledge the, quote, attritional impact the case is having on the royal family. Joining me now is the Daily Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English, who broke that story in the paper today. Rebecca, that would be a huge shift. And if he did settle out of court, people would then assume, wouldn't they, he had a lot to hide? Absolutely. Hi, Andrew. Yeah, I do think it's a really interesting development because settlements uh, is not something we've heard raised before, but certainly my inquiries have suggested that because we're dealing with the US system and the US system, uh, 99% of um, lawsuits such as this are settled out of court. It is certainly not being ruled out as an option. It's not actively being discussed yet because there are some other avenues that Alan Drew's team have available to them to go down. And of course, they are still waiting to hear what the judge is ruling on this motion to dismiss. But I was on that call on Tuesday and it was utterly brutal. Um, The judge made very clear he had short shrift with all of Andrew's lawyers' um, arguments. So we're all anticipating that he will rule that it should go to trial. Um, So it's an interesting, as you say, it's an interesting option for Andrew because, of course, it doesn't clear his name, which is what he says he wants to do. Um, And people will, even with no liability, you know, inevitably draw some inference to that. Yeah, because it's almost a lose-lose, isn't it, Rebecca? Because on the one hand, agreeing uh, a no-liability settlement, it would be a confidential agreement, would prevent the prince of going through the humiliating experience of being cross-examined, quizzed. It would be on a video link. It could well be televised. Uh, It would be reported all around the world. So he would avoid that. But on the other hand, as you say, it would do nothing to help him clear his name, which he says he wants to do. And where would that leave the Queen too, Rebecca, who we understand has been funding his legal um, defence? Well, exactly. And this is the thing that the people often forget about the royals is they do live in very nice houses, but they're not massively cash rich, not in the kind of multi, multi-million pound stakes we're talking about. So, yes, I'm sure he would have to go tap in hand to his mother over this. Um, but, of course, this is one of the things I think is playing on their minds is this kind of, as you rightly said, as we said in the paper today, this 
attritional aspect for the royal family. As for the Queen, who's 95, who has not long lost her husband and is meant to be celebrating this really historic platinum jubilee this year, which is going to be utterly overshadowed by her, her second son's legal woes. But I do think I have to say, if he does go down this route and agree a settlement, with uh, Virginia Joffrey, which of course will, will, as you rightly say, prevent him from having to go through the humiliating experience of deposition and a trial. I- I'm not sure he could ever come back to public life, which is what, in his heart of hearts, he's always hoped he could do. I think that would be the final nail in that particular coffin, I have to say. Even just finally, Rebecca, if he were to win the fight case he's fighting this week to have the lawsuit dismissed, and then Virginia Dufresne was no longer able to pursue legal action against him. He walks away from the court. But yet again, his name isn't cleared because the allegations against him haven't been examined. They haven't been tested in court. So it would be a technical victory. Some would argue a pretty poor Pyrrhic victory. Exactly. You're absolutely right. It would be a technical victory. Although I think if, if uh, I'm not expecting this to happen, I have to say, I'll be gobsmacked if it does, if the judge does rule in his favour this week, I think there is uh, a way for uh, Virginia's team to go to appeal. But it, it's all just, I think it leaves people with quite a nasty taste in their mouth, isn't it? That that it's it's not him going in there and proving his innocence. Um it's kind of trying to get the case thrown out of court so it doesn't cause any more difficulty, any more embarrassment. And to be fair to him, that is that is a problem that is going to um, tax his advisors and his, uh, his legal team for some time to come. How do you go about repairing Andrew's um, uh, public image? And I, I'm not sure there's a way to do that, to be honest. It does seem pretty difficult, certainly from where I'm sitting. That's um, the Daily Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English. She's written that great scoop today, suggesting that Prince Andrew may well settle out of court if the case goes against him this week. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pierce Show for free, in full, along with our other podcasts and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. It's time to talk sport and Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatt was here with the latest. And Matt, this is a story that's transcending the sports pages, of course. It's in fact on many front pages, dominating the broadcast broadcasters too. Novak Djokovic, probably the, one of the most famous sportsmen in the world, effectively being deported currently from Australia because he's not, we assume, been vaccinated. Uh, and the Australian Prime Minister does not want him taking part in that Australian Open, which starts, what, on the 17th of January, to defend his title. And I say, quite flipping right too. Well, yeah, abs- as you say, an absolutely extraordinary story that um, that Novak Djokovic, the world number one, you know, the uh, he's got 20 Grand Slam titles mm-hmm. to his name, along with uh, uh, Nadal and Federer, um, out and out favourite to win this tournament. If he, get, you know, if he'd got there, um, and as soon as he touches down, having sent a tweet out saying, "I'm on my way. I've got a medical exemption to a play in the Aussie Open," uh, touches down in Melbourne and is told, um, in no uncertain terms, "You're not coming in." Now. It's been put down as a kind of visa uh, issue. Um, you know, that seems to be the excuse they've come up with. But the tweet didn't go down well when Djokovic sent mm. it before he flew. And then in the, the subsequent um, time that he was flying, the Australian Prime Minister got involved saying um, no one comes in unless they're, you know, unless they're properly vaccinated or they have the proper medical exemption. Well, Novak didn't, wouldn't go on record as saying what his medical exemption was, just that he had one. Uh, and it appears that that's not good enough. And 
if there were, um, you know, special arrangements made for him, mm. the Aussie Prime Minister stepped in and said, well, we're not having that. And yeah. he's currently now being held, because uh, so Djokovic lawyers have now got involved, so mm. well, we're not going anywhere. So he's now being held, held, held up in a... Uh, in a detention hotel over the weekend <laughs> uh, until the Aussies, uh, till the Australian border officials make a final decision mm. on it. That's not going to be until uh, Sunday evening our time. Uh, and that's when they make a final Which decision. Which won't do wonders for his preparation either. Well, exactly. I mean, being basically, yeah, locked up in a hotel yeah. room. I mean, look, it's only probably, what, 48, well, no, slightly longer, yeah. 72 hours. But, yeah, not ideal for him to be locked but, up in a hotel but, room during that period. But the fact is, Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, made the point he's head as Prime Minister, effectively the border force, and he'll decide, and he'll overrule yeah. whatever. Even if these officials say at a local level, I suspect... Uh, he can play, the Prime Minister's going to say, yeah. no, he can't. Well, Craig Tilley, who's the head of the uh, Australian Tennis Federation, mm. was the one who sort of gave him the green light to come in because, right. you know, he's in charge of the tennis. Mm. For him, you know, he wants the world number one. Yeah. He wants the box office. He wants the story. He wants the attention on the on the Australian Open. Now, I'm not saying he's necessarily done anything wrong, but it does seem remarkable that suddenly Djokovic, after a lot of toing and froing mm. and will he, won't he turn up, suddenly gets this medical exemption but can't actually explain what it is. We mm. obviously know he hasn't been vaccinated because... He's on record as being an anti-vaxxer. Yeah. So, um, so this medical, this mysterious medical exemption that popped up, and suddenly when he gets there, no, no, you're not coming in. You've, there's a there's a visa problem. It, it's bizarre. You know that one of the few sports I care about is tennis, and I've always thought Roger Federer is a god. You cannot imagine Roger Federer or Rafa Nadal, the other two on 20 Grand Slams, ever getting themselves into a scrape like this. It's a PR catastrophe. For Nadal, for, sorry for Djokovic, and you couldn't even make up his name, could you? Novak. I oh, know Novak, uh, Novak. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, and it's a PR catastrophe. And the fact that he's going to court and to law now, the fact we know his wife is one of these pretty mad anti-vax conspiracists. She said uh, it's to do with the uh, you know radio mask. She that does. Her, she does, which belief. is one of the more yeah. mad theories doing the rounds. But I suspect even if he had been allowed to play, Matt, he'd have been booed the moment he walked on court. Well. Yeah, I mean, Melburnians weren't going to put up with someone just no. rolling into Melbourne. They, they've suffered more days of lockdown uh -huh. than any other city in the world. So they mm. weren't just going to go, oh, yeah, in you come, mate. Yeah, you crack on. We know you're not vaccinated. But no one can get in to watch the tennis if they're not vaccinated. Yet you can go on and play. So they weren't going to take it lying down. You're right. I think he would have been roundly booed. And it is a PR gaffe, him now fighting it to try and get in. Because what happens, you know, let's say somehow he does overturn and he does get in. Well, he's not going to be very popular, is no. he? Even no. when he plays. So it's going to be... An absolute PR disaster to fight it. His dad's come out in our uh, um, criticising, um, you know, criticising the Australian authorities, saying that it's like he's been taken hostage. Um, so that's sort of, you know, and we'll, his, his dad said, you know, we'll fight them in the streets, and that sort of aggressive language yeah, is not going to win him any friends. And this obviously Novak, he's had loads of right, look. look he does do some good things. He, sure he, he does. contributes a heck of a lot of money to charity, etc., etc., etc. So there are good sides to him. He, uh, a, a tournament he arranges in Serbia, he arranged for everyone who turned up to be vaccinated when they were there. Mm. So he's not anti the idea of people getting vaccinated. He just doesn't want to get vaccinated himself. So, um, you know, there are some good points to him. But also, he's got this long, checkered record of sort slightly crazy things like believing that the power of thought can purify water. I know. Um, you know, he, he pressed a piece of uh, a slice of bread to his stomach and deduced from the that that he was gluten intolerant. So he's got all these slightly uh, weird and wonderful uh, ideas on life. Um, 
But yeah, this is just can only it's lead been, one way, and it's that's adding to his unpopularity. You know, kept on the runway in his private yeah. jet for hours on end. Yeah. Now he's effectively been um, uh, detained yeah. uh, without trial in this hotel, which won't be the luxury he's used no, to. No, I'm, I'm told sure this. Ho- I'm told this hotel is no great shakes. It's yeah. like an ibis, I imagine. I don't or think a, there's a tennis court. Attack. I'm sure there isn't. And the whole of the world is against him. I would argue there'd be some. Um, I saw a Serbian journalist wheeled out somewhere on the TV last night trying to defend uh, Novak Djokovic. But I'm so glad this has happened because these sportsmen, we've talked about this before, Matt, they, they, and women, they're role models. Yeah. Uh, they have millions of followers, yeah. hundreds of millions of followers all around the world on Instagram. And uh, so they should, they have a duty in my, in my book to get vaccinated, to encourage others to do the same, whether they're a Premier League footballer or a, pl- a tennis player of the stature of Djokovic. I completely agree. And what message would it have sent oh. if he'd somehow got this mysterious medical yeah. exemption and yeah. been allowed to play? Well, anyone And then goes wa- on to win. And goes on to win. And then, you know, it's sort of like anyone who's wavering about getting the vaccination will say, well, no, you know, it, you know, vaccination, mm. you know, d- doesn't equal success. Yeah. Uh, dodging the, the vaccination is e- equaling success. So, no, I think it's absolutely, I think it's madness that he was allowed to go in. Mm. They'd all along, the Australian Open has said, unless you're vaccinated, yeah, yeah. you're not coming in. Right. And then this sudden late, you know, change of plan um, seemed extraordinary in itself. Um, and obviously that's backfired massively on the Aussie Open now with, the, as you say, the politicians yeah. getting involved and saying, well, no. And quite right. And of course, Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, has got an election in four months' time. Hello, wonder if that's relevant. <laughs> but does this mean now Rafa Nadal... Um, I don't know if he's pl- if he's playing. Is yeah. he front runner yeah. now to win? Well, Rafa's playing. I mean, R- Roger's not, and obviously which we don't is think, devastating, which obviously. is devastating for for you. Yeah. And Djokovic, obviously, we think now won't yeah. be. So, uh, but you know, I, the I don't could know. Be, get to twenty one grand stamps before uh, he could. Djokovic. He could. I, He's not played for a long time. He's just recovered from COVID himself. Yeah. Um, it, obviously, you know, his knees and age are against him. I would thought if. You, you would look that if Djokovic isn't in, it's going to be one of the younger guys yeah. uh, like Medvedev, Tsitsipas. Um, I would have thought you've got to look at someone like that, to be honest, or uh, Zverev, you know, yeah. I would have thought, um, rather than Nadal. But, you know, Nadal yeah. continually proves us wrong. And Nadal did tweet something about Djokovic. Effectively saying he's brought it on himself, so not much love lost no, there. No, absolutely not. Well, he's not. Yeah, there is no love lost there. They're not the best of friends. Uh, you know, he's not. He's not a massively popular man on the tour, Djokovic. Full no, stop. So, no. and this won't and help. This won't help at all. And of course, we will keep you up to date on Mel Plus on this podcast and in the sports pages and on the front pages. I suspect about wow, what happens to Djokovic. Novak Djokovic, who is behaving like the worst sort of prima donna, in my view. And that's Matt Gatwood, who's never been a prima donna. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, why don't you tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So Boris Johnson has finally announced that costly COVID tests for travellers are to be scrapped. It means massive savings for families planning holidays and could lead for many more families uh, enjoying some winter sun. From 0400 hours GMT on Friday, fully vaccinated travellers coming to England will no longer have to take a test before they travel. Travel industry bosses are already reporting a massive surge in bookings. I'm joined now by the great travel expert himself, Paul Charles, who is chief executive of the PC agency. Paul, it's not just that test uh, before they travel. There's also the test which I think they have to take uh, a couple of days after they arrive, and isolation is also coming to an end. 
That's right. It's a positive triple whammy, Andrew, for once, which is going to really help the sector reboot at the start of the year. So the pre-departure test going, that's caused enormous emotional and financial distress to people who were worried about potentially testing positive before they flew back to the UK. The removal of the PCR test on day two when you arrive back in the UK being replaced from this Sunday instead by just a simple lateral flow test, which is much cheaper, of course. And the fact that self-isolation goes so you can take a lateral flow test as soon as you get home and not have to stay in and worry about the potential results later. Now, this has taken a long time, and uh, I can Mm. recall in the middle of December, I think it was a health secretary, Sajid Javid, suggesting that a lot of travel restrictions could be lifted. Um, I don't want to carp and be negative on a a positive day for the industry, but it does seem a little late. Well, it's clear that when a minister says temporary, then it clearly means more than a month. Yes, I think it, it was in place longer than it should have been because the government knew that Omicron was less severe um, even by by Christmas Day. And of course, a lot of people wanted to travel to visit family and friends or even do business between Christmas and New Year. So it would have been nice for these restrictions to be diluted then. But we are where we are. At least there's now a real chance the ski season can be saved. And especially if France backs down on some of its measures as expected next week. And that people can book with confidence for Easter. And that's the next big period for the industry to work towards. Already, as you say, confidence is certainly returning and it's certainly more positive now. And what also about, Paul, the very important part of the travel industry that we sometimes neglect to talk about, people coming here for a holiday, is it going Mm. to be less complicated and less expensive for perhaps a family coming from America to visit family or any part of Europe? It's certainly going to be less expensive for inbound travellers and uh, inbound travel contributes 40 to 50 billion pounds to the UK economy. So it's not to be sniffed at. It's a very important part of our economy indeed. I think it's going to take a little bit longer for confidence to be rebuilt because a lot of other countries still have tough restrictions in place themselves. The thing is, the UK government have always been, I think, the, the leader, if you like, in tough restrictions. And so other countries have looked to the UK, especially in the face of Omicron, and said, oh, well, if the UK is putting in place these tough measures, we're going to do the same. So the fact that they're reducing them now may send a signal to other countries to start diluting their own restrictions, and that will encourage more people to travel. I think you'll see a bumper summer of inbound travel, but it's going to take a few weeks yet for that confidence to return. Uh, So bit by bit, things will recover, but it's going to take some time. And just finally, Paul, are you an avid skier? Are you, in which case, are you off? Uh, I would be. I'm not the world's best skier, I have to say. Uh, I love being at the slopes, but generally to watch rather than go down them. Uh, I'm much happier on a cable car than I am going down the slope. But I, I already know it's going to be a busy season. I was talking to some tour operators who specialise in ski yesterday and also some private jet firms who mm. say already the, the slots at some of the smaller airports in the Alps are already booked up for private jets to go in this February half term. So it's going to be the season of recovery without doubt after two years of really no skiing at all. It's been very harsh for the sector. So yes, it will bounce back. The thing we've got to see, of course, is the final test removed, that lateral flow test. It's not needed. If I can go on a train from London to Edinburgh 
and mix with lots of people and not have to take any tests. Why should I have to take a lateral flow test when I go on a train from Brussels to London? It doesn't make sense. And I think you'll find the government remove that final single test at the end of January. Yeah, and then hopefully, Paul, too, they might get round to reducing the quarantine period from seven days down to five, mm, which is what a lot five, of the world possibly. are doing as well. I think the government's realised that it's it's time to, you know, this is how you live with COVID. Exactly. If we can get through this yep. winter with more exactly. relaxed restrictions, then better. I absolutely agree. Uh, Paul, always good to talk to you. And what a great way to start the new year for the travel industry uh, on a real positive and a real high. That's Paul Charles, who is the chief executive of the PC agency. Thanks for joining us. And I'll just give you a little revelation here as to those private jets. It's not one of my bookings. So lateral flow tests, I'm afraid, have been in short supply since Christmas and the New Year at the worst possible time because literally tens of thousands of NHS workers are stuck in isolation, unable to enter clinics because of persistent supply problems with lateral flow and PCR tests. I'm joined now by Dr Chan Nagpal, who's chairman of the British Medical Association Council. Dr Nagpal, um, we've really got to get this sorted, haven't we, if we want to get this problem of more than a million people isolating at home, many of whom are working in the NHS, many of whom are working in schools and in public transport, which is effectively contributing to large parts of the country almost grinding to a halt. Absolutely. This is really impacting significantly on uh, the the, the services we can provide because, you know, even if um, a member of our staff, let's say I'm in in a GP practice, it can be a receptionist right through to a doctor or a nurse, if they cannot have access to a lateral flow test that allows them to return to work on day seven, that just means we continue to be short-staffed, we have to cancel appointments, patients suffer, and it takes its toll on the existing staff who then have to cover for absent colleagues. You're absolutely right, this is a problem that needs to be resolved. Now, the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, has warned in a letter to MPs that tests might have to be prioritised for vulnerable groups such as care home residents and NHS staff. Do you agree with that? Well, obviously, it's vital that we uh, ensure that um, those who are caring for others uh, are able to have access to the test because if they can then uh, be negative uh, on day seven and return to work, uh, that allows... Uh, greater benefit for, for, for larger numbers of people and in, in particular since we're looking after um, um, people who are ill and people who need to be cared for. But what I would add is that I find it a little strange that um, the announcement or the policy decision to reduce um, isolation to seven days was predicated on, on lateral flow tests mm. as was of course the advice uh, to uh, have lateral flow tests when you go out to, uh, social, socially mixing. So if, if those policies should in my view have been uh, put forward, factoring in the, the, the required numbers of tests. So it's a pity we're in this position. It's also bizarre, it strikes me, Dr Nagpur, that the company uh, responsible for distribution of these lateral flow tests, they're called Alliance Healthcare, they took delivery of 2.5 million packs and promptly closed down for Christmas for four days. Yeah, I mean, I I. I... <laughs> I can't comment on, on, on their decision specifically, but I have to say that what we do know is that this virus doesn't have a Christmas break. Quite. And the impact on, on the health service, the impact on, on people who are working in frontline uh, roles, it, it, you know, is, it has been as real uh, on every single day during the festive break. So um, clearly from, from our end, this, was, uh, this is 
uh, 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 an emergency, I mean, this is as, as much part of our emergency services at the moment, is having access to these tests that allow us, those people who are negative, to return to work. And just can you tell me from, from a medical point of view how um, the, the it seems that the COVID uh, booster rollout has stalled somewhat, Dr Nagpur, which is also rather concerning. Uh, as far as you're aware, the, the, the GPs that you know, are they working flat out to try and get that increased? Absolutely. And, you know, I just wanted to sort of just explain how much work we put in as GPs. In fact, before uh, uh, Christmas, we were in our practice uh, ringing up uh, patients who uh, um, had not ha- had the booster. We identified those at highest risk. In fact, some of the staff who were doing this, in fact, you know, one of my GP colleagues in my practice was doing it self-isolating. That's the level of commitment we had because we wanted to make sure that those who needed the booster would have it. So we've tried to also categorize the patients who are highest at risk. It is important because, you know, the, the, the Omicron, you've actually got almost a double reality here because you've got the reality on the one hand of a lot of people who are uh, suffering mild illness and it gives you the impression then that in fact this is not a very serious illness but on the other hand there's actually a lot of serious illness happening as well and in fact at the moment we have twice as many people in hospital 17,000 compared to at Christmas that's you know that's a significant doubling of numbers uh, and uh, similarly, the numbers who were admitted on a daily basis was yesterday around 2,200 or 2,100. You know, before Christmas, we were down to below 1,000. So this is having a very real impact on people. And the other you know, issue for us in the health service, and I speak on behalf of hospital doctors and GPs as, as chair of council at the BMA, mm. is that it's patients who do not have COVID who are also suffering yes. uh, because they're routine appointments are being cancelled they've been waiting for surgery sometimes for 12 months and they've been told in many hospitals that they've had to delay uh, um, those operations so i think we have to recognize this isn't just an issue about covid infections it's affecting everyone who needs the health service absolutely uh, and dr nagpal just finally um are you confident that this um this is a temporary problem with in the supply chain with the uh, with the pcr tests Oh, I, I, all I can say is I really, you know, I, I, I can only, uh, you know, H- hope so. pray that it is temporary because, in fact, as you know, we're now wanting, well, the government's announced that lateral flow tests will be used yeah. instead of PCR tests. So we definitely need them, need them available uh, and in stock with supplies to all of us. All right. That's Dr. Chand Nagpur, who's chairman of the BMA Council. Thanks for joining us and always a pleasure to talk to you. So David Bowie is the latest big name to sell the publishing rights to his music. They've gone to Warner Chapel. The deal is thought to be worth in excess of $250 million. It's the latest in a series of sales. Debbie Harry, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan are among the other ones who sold their publishing rights for eye-watering sums. Joining me to talk about this now is Crispin Hunt, who's chairman of the Ivers Academy. He's a songwriter, producer and former member of long pigs crispin i don't really know what it means by selling your publishing rights does that mean they no longer get any royalties from their music what does it mean in real terms i think it does i I think it does mean that i think in every in every piece of song that we hear on the record there are two sets of rights there's a there's a right to the to the composition or the you know the song the bit that you will hear someone busking and then there's a right to the recording and um 
And David Bowie has already sold his rights to the recording to Warner's, Warner Music Group, and he's now sold the rights to the songs. Um, so anyone who does a cover of Changes or does a cover of, of Heroes, um, uh, they also own the rights to, to, that, to, to half of the money from that use. And um, I, I think it's a really interesting landscape we're in, which is changing music quite. Um, significantly streaming has a lot of problems streaming but it has a lot of benefits streaming has brought you know meaningful money back into the music industry and um, but it's not necessarily bringing it back into the into the writers um, or into the um, to the uh, you know to the people who create the music Um, and so there is a but but it's encouraging that there's a um, that there's a move to recognize the value of songs and these huge sums these eye-watering sums that are being paid for song catalogs are um in one respect recognition that the song is probably in streaming the most valuable commodity um there's a lot of especially in tiktok there was some good data in tiktok the other day that said that um you know a song will be shared a billion times on tiktok but the artist who sings it will will not necessarily will only get fifty thousand likes so the implication is that the song has taken over as the most important part rather than the recording or the or the artist themselves and um, I mean, the song is the bit that we hum when we're doing the washing up. And so that, yeah. that makes sense to me. And, um, and these eye-watering sums are, you could either see them for, the, for people like Bowie and Dylan and um, all the others that you've mentioned, um, mm. who, who can command great prices because people think that um, yeah, a song's copyright lasts for the life of the artist plus another 70 years. So Warner Music Group have just bought... 70 years worth of guaranteed income from all of right. all of yes. all the David Bowie's money but um but i i mean some songwriters see this as asset stripping because the value of the song is very low at the moment in fact um Crosby Stills and Nash David Crosby when he sold his con- his um song catalog recently put up a tweet saying none of us would be selling it if we could make any money from it none of us so the question is whether 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 people are cashing in because the situation is so bad or yes. whether people are or whether there is just a kind of bubble for songs at the moment. But I, I worry that it's going to undermine um, the intention of copyright. Copyright is supposed to be when you when you write a song, you that that song instantly belongs to you. And it's, and it's yes. a piece of art. And, and certainly in France and in Germany. They have a kind of moral right. You can't sell your song just in the same way as you couldn't sell your children into slavery um, because it's considered immoral. And um, but I, I worry that the, the, um, there's a sort of grab of song rights which will undermine their value in the long term. It will mm. it will weaken copyright if copyright stops being something that belongs to authors and songwriters and artists and starts being something that is just a, a, a job for hire. You do wonder as well what hope the songwriter when they're up against the likes of a big publishing company like Warner Music Group. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Warner, um, Warner Music Group are my, are my publishers and they're, they're a great, they're, you know, Warner Chapel are a, are a fantastic um, 
publisher with a huge heritage. But but the yeah. problem is is that the, these big music groups are now trying to compete with the funds like Hypnosis, who are also trying to um, uh, buying up futures of songs. And and there's a question about whether the music groups prefer the, the people like Hypnosis want the value of the song to get to get bigger because they want to see a bigger return on their investment. And the question is, are the big music groups trying to kind of own the market share of all of all the big songs out there in order to control the value of music so that they can, because they make much more money from four times the amount of money from the recording as they do from the, from the song. And as songwriters, we don't necessarily think that's right. Very, very interesting uh, area, isn't it? Um, that's Crispin Hunt, who's chairman of the Ivers Academy, songwriter, producer, and was member, of course, of Long Pigs. Uh, thanks for joining That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.